0: Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 106, The Elusive Madrid. Last time, General Franco, though now the official head of the Nationalist Cause, had failed to take the Spanish capital in October of 1936, thus bringing the Civil War to a quick resolution. And though his forces continued to move closer to Madrid, another failure resulted in November. But Franco was undeterred, as he told Wilhelm Frappel, the new German Charge d'Affaires, I will take Madrid, then all of Spain, including Catalonia, will fall into my hands, more or less without a fight. The German passed this objective on to Hitler, but also added his assessment that it was extremely unrealistic. But again, this was fine with Hitler, as it must be remembered that his entire purpose in supporting the nationalists was to move the eyes of Europe to the west, so his land grabs in the east would draw less attention and, hopefully, less of a response. But it was now time for Franco to make good his boast. As we have seen, his first attack on the capital came from the northwest in late November, led by General Valera. The attackers had some 3,000 Legion and Moroccan troops, backed up by tanks, large guns, and JU-52 bombers. Yet, despite their initial success, the militia reformed their defensive line, supported by Soviet T-26 tanks. With the attack from the northwest stalled, it was time to try again, this time directly west of Madrid. General Olgaz was in overall command this time, but again, General José Valera held the field command. Using a 17,000-man force formed into four columns, the Nationalists came on, but only after an intense bombardment with 155mm artillery. Their first target was the town and municipality of Boaida del Monte, about 20 kilometers, or 12.5 miles, west of the capital. As the general staff in Madrid only considered this a diversionary attack, not enough forces were sent to hold the town, which was overrun that night of December 16th. Now that they knew better, the 11th and 12th International Brigades were sent in, supported by General Pavlov's T-26 tanks. The 11th Brigade moved forward and managed to push Valora's men out of the town. But now that the Nationalists had an enemy force clearly marked, their artillery was brought forward, and Valero's men were sent back in the International Brigade again formed a defensive line, but this time, instead of inside university buildings, they were holding up in the houses of the landed gentry. The back-and-forth fighting went on until December 19th, both sides losing many men, and the upscale neighborhood losing many fine structures. But having only gained minimal territory, Orgaz toward Valera to halt on December 20th. 17,000 men is a respectable-sized force, but with no reinforcements, he could picture valorous position unraveling as it moved forward, and there would be no one to assist them. The brigade of the foreigners had once again stopped the nationalist charge, but luck had been a large element of their success. Besides the language barrier, the international brigades had no maps or the ability to communicate with each other. At one point before this latest fighting, the two brigades almost charged into each other. Tenacity, rather than intelligence, had won the day. As can be imagined, Franco was most displeased with another stalled march on the capital. Orgaz would be given reinforcements and told to move out again, which he would do, but taking his orders a little too literally. When he was reinforced, Orgaz would have Valera attack along the same line. There would be no diversions, no subtlety, just smash mouth tactics, with an order to charge the enemy. During the lull before the Nationalists' latest attack, Madrid redeployed their forces within the Pozuelo Brunente area along the left flank, but did not send any more ammunition. Nor was this new defensive line without gaps or the ability to communicate along the line. So, when the Nationalists came again on January 3rd, 1937, the defender's right wing fell back, having used up most of its ammo, but also unable to tell the left flank of what had transpired. Which meant the left in Pozuelo continued to fight tenaciously, even though their position as each minute went by, was becoming more tenuous. Again, the men of the left flank rose to acts of heroism, losing many of their own, but taking many more of the enemy with them. With only half of the defensive line holding, Valera, who had been informed of what was happening, sent his eight batteries of 105 and 155mm artillery, along with tanks and bombers, to break the stubborn left. This had the intended effect, and soon the entire defensive line de-evolved into chaos and ran. However, as the fog was thick that morning, the fleeing men weren't exactly sure where to run to. General Miaha of the Republicans ordered the 10th Brigade to take up the guns of those fleeing, hoping to still resist the successful Nationalist attack. Yet the hunter, and hunted, became equally lost in the unclear morning. Two companies of German light tanks stumbled into a formation of Republican 37 millimeter guns, mounted on Soviet armored vehicles, and were decimated. In time, after analyzing such battles, the Germans would order heavier tanks to be built, which would serve them well after 1939. Of course, the Republicans would do their own analyzing, After this battle, the request for more ammunition by General Miaha before, during, and after this clash would be labeled as the cause for defeat by Largo Caballero and the War Ministry. Either way, the front to the west of the capital had now collapsed. Miaha knew from experience that many of those men from the militias would sneak away from their units and make for the capital. So he straightway ordered machine guns set up at crossroads between the fighting and the city to shoot deserters. Once again, the way was open to the capital. But once again, the attackers were exhausted, due directly to the almost suicidal tenacity of the defenders, regardless of their nationality. The idea that this war was to be the death knell of fascism was never far from the men's mind, most certainly of the international brigades. With the attackers resting, General Miaha moved troops into the shattered front. The 12th International and Lister's Brigade were sent in, but also the 14th International Brigade was ordered to lead the Cordoba Front to the southwest and make for the west. With these men in place, the communist Kleber knew they had to hold no matter their dispositions or their lack of ammo. In early January, he ordered the Thalman Battalion to not retreat a single centimeter, and they would follow his command. Of course, by the time the next series of clashes were over, there were only 35 of them left. By mid-January, both sides had satisfactorily reformed their lines, but now the men were tired from rushing to the front. This latest battle for Madrid was over. Still, the Nationalists had captured most of the Caruna Road. But what mattered was that Madrid had not been encircled from the West. Supplies and electricity could still get through. For all this fighting thus far, each side had lost some 15,000 men. Those inside the tanks on both sides of the battle suffered in their own way. The men would come out at the end of the day and vomit, due to the constant ringing in their ears or by the gyrations from maneuvers. The slits or holes that allowed oxygen to get in would regularly clog, thus the men inside would quickly become lightheaded. The Soviet women of the medical unit for the tank brigades did the best they could to care for the men. The tank commander Pavlov even stepped in and made the men's daily lives, as comfortable as possible. This included providing mattresses to sleep on instead of the ground, plenty of firewood for the stoves for heat, and an attempt by the nurses to keep hygiene to high standards. The women also began to notice and treat as best they could the symptoms of what we would call today post-traumatic stress disorder. It didn't help that the men were mostly issued only a rifle ammunition pouches, and a blanket. As the majority of them were from cities, few knew of anything of woodcraft, so suffered accordingly that winter as the wind and snows came down off the Sierras. Mud allowed no one to stay clean, and as the men saw digging trenches as cowardly, there was little escape from the elements, or artillery shells. As the next series of engagements were being planned, By both sides, the Republicans had to be honest with their dispositions on paper versus what was actually in the field. Supposedly, each battalion would have a machine gun company and three rifle companies. In reality, however, only the international brigades or select communist units had any such comparable numbers of men. In fact, only such a fully manned battalion had any chance of staving off the Moroccan regulars. And even then, it came down to the use of their automatic weapons. As they, the Moroccans, had become proficient at using seemingly clear land or dead ground to sneak up on the Republican forces and launch a knife attack. Where the militias saw almost non-existent folds in the ground, the Moroccans saw alleyways to the enemy's positions. Understandably, the North Africans soon acquired the reputation of ghosts. Those infantrymen, actually doing the fighting, also suffered, as the tactics had changed little since the Great War. There would be improvement in the form of close coordination between infantry, artillery, and air power from the Condor Legion. After all, they were there mostly to test and improve upon tactics, which would spread out to other parts of the Nationalist forces, but slowly. To oppose this evolution of tactics... The generals and officers of the Republican Army, especially the younger men, sadly relied on their personal bravery, choosing to fight harder instead of smarter. This only got more of their men killed or wounded. The just-finished battle of Coruna Road had not gone well for either side, but it gave those Spanish Republican officers, even General Miaha, a chance to criticize Klebler his real name, Manfred Stern, of the Soviet military intelligence, saying the defense of Madrid could have been more robust, the casualties handled to the attackers could have been greater. Upon coming to Spain, he had taken the name of one of Napoleon's generals, jean Baptiste Kleber. The truth of this charge against him, and there was plenty of fault to go around, was relatively easy to refute, but Kleber would have to go back to Moscow to do it, and he would have his opportunity, whether he wanted it or not, as he was summoned back by Stalin. Normally, this would have been the end of a man's career, and quite frankly, his life. But Kleber would return in June of 1937, yet he would return as a model officer, dedicated to the Spanish and the communist way, and very much subdued. But truth be told, his grandiosity was more a product of the international press rather than the man himself. Not all international brigades were created equal, and they certainly weren't perfect. In between the two major actions of the battle for the Karuna Road, Nationalist General Quiepo De men attacked to the south for the olive-growing area of Aldujar. There, the 14th International Brigade, under the command of General Walter, a Polish communist, waited. His brigade also contained the French Marseille Battalion and a British company. The Nationalists launched their attack on the morning of December 28th, near the small village of Lopera, about 150 miles or 214 kilometers south of the capital. As this attack had been coordinated and planned out, It was successful, but now General Walter was ordered to retake the village. However, when his attack commenced, he had no way of informing all of his men. Moreover, he had no way to ask for air support or for a pre-attack artillery barrage. So, when the 14th charged in, the first 800 of them were immediately gunned down. The 500 men right behind them, seeing this carnage, retreated and then deserted. But for some inexplicable reason, the French officer in charge of the French battalion, and not General Walter, was arrested by André Marty, the political commissar of the International Brigades. He was tried and shot. His watch and whatever money he had on him was brought back to the courtroom after he had been taken outside. As many men would go on to hate Marty as those who admired him, for his direct method of dealing with failure. As stated, all the major players concerned realized by late January 1937 that this ever-growing war would be a protracted one as well. Hitler already knew this due to his sources and welcomed this turn of events. Franco, less so, but his faith in an ultimate victory was unfazed. No, it was Mussolini who would blow hot and cold, crowing one minute or then wailing the next, as his donated troops either did well or failed to live up to his expectations. But getting back to Franco, as it was now clear that the war could not be won with a quick capture of the capital, he knew he would need an even larger professional army to grab the various sections of Spain that would give him the ultimate victory. So once again, he turned to the two fascist leaders. And here again, their response was just as meaningful as had been the actual fighting of their soldiers. By the time the officers of the Condor Legion were done training the Phalangist Militia and the Carlis Requetes, their effectiveness would be so much greater than their fighting ability of 1936. And yet, at the core of their improvement was their self-discipline. Which came from being a people of hill farmers. Within time, their ability to wage war would come close to the brutal army of North Africa. So it will come as little surprise when the leader of the Carlist, Falcande, announced in December of 1936 that he intended to start a royal military academy. His excuse was to guarantee that there would always be enough Carlist officers. But Franco recognized this as the power base it was intended to be. Therefore, he claimed that such a move would go against the nature of the nationalist movement. The plan was scrapped, and Falconde was forced into exile in Portugal. With another political victory under his belt, Franco then ordered that all fighting forces, even if political in nature, were subject to the chain of command. His command. As 1937 was taking shape, the Nationalists now had just over 200,000 men. Most of these were of the Carlist and Falangist forces. Thus, their leaders were watched closely by Franco. The Army of Africa had just over 60,000 men. The rest were made up of Portuguese volunteers called Viratos, and there were right-wing French and Irish fighters as well. Though nationalist forces would continue to grow, the contributions by Hitler and Mussolini was significant. The first part of the Condor Legion came in mid-November, in response to Soviet weapons being shipped to Madrid. General Spiro was in overall command, but Colonel von Richthofen was in charge of the Luftwaffe there. Eventually, there would be four fighter squadrons of Heinkel 51 biplanes, but in time, these were replaced by Schmidt 109s, and four squadrons of JU-52 bombers. It would be these planes, tested in Spain, that Hitler would use to such great effect for the early part of the Second World War. The Germans would also contribute to the land war by donating heavy machine gun detachments and two panzer battalions of some 106 tanks. Mussolini would match this But before 1937 was out, he, desiring glory, would set up the CTV, or Corps of Volunteer Troops. These men were openly fighting for Mussolini and sought to bring him fame on the battlefield with their exploits. There would eventually be some 50,000 Italians attached to the CTV. And it would be some of these Italians that would see action now. While the two sides rested their main forces... General Cuepo De had decided his time had come to hit the Republican-controlled area that was really nothing more than a sliver of land to the south, along the coast. From Montreal to Estepona, some 20 miles or 32 kilometers to the northeast of Gibraltar. In truth, De was only seeking to re-establish his influence, and guessed that the capital was a nut whose time had not yet come to crack. But not only did Franco endorse this plan, though Deiano had to be watched, he placed in field command a Bourbon prince, Colonel Francisco de Bourbon, the Duke of Seville. Franco also asked the Italians to come in on this attack with their 10,000 legionary force. The reason for this was simple. Victory was all but assured, which will be evident when the defenders' dispositions are covered. And, as this would be a partly Italian victory, the fickle Mussolini would be likely to give even more men in the future. As for the Republican positions there, it embodied the very definition of untenable. Because it was long and narrow, the attackers could pierce it wherever they wanted. The defending CNT and Communist forces strongly distrusted each other, and the mountains around the area helped the attackers just as much as they did the defenders. The Republicans had no more than 12,000 men there, yet some 30% of them had no rifles. Those that had, had little ammunition. This last weakness was directly due to the current Republican leader, Largo Caballero, who did not trust the too-independent nature of the people there. And lastly, Madrid did not trust the local commander, Colonel Villalba, who simply believed he was incompetent, or worse, that he had deliberately weakened his defenses, because he would be well-treated by the nationalists after this battle. After all, the defenders had no anti-air defenses, nor had they been ordered to dig trenches or put up roadblocks, as Franco well knew. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 107, Success in the South. Last time, with the nationalist attempt to take Madrid having failed, Franco attempted to regain the initiative by launching a quick strike near the southern coast. The area in question was a strip of land some 25 miles or 40 kilometers wide and centered around the city of Malaga. Hence, the coming contest would be called the Battle of Malaga. Yet the word contest is misleading, as the Nationalists would make very short work of the Republican defenders. The Republican-held territory stretched just west of Estepona on the left side, running all the way east, just to the right side of Montreal. The port city of Malaga, in the center, was one of the Republicans' naval bases, with a larger one located further to the northeast, at Cartagena. And it was thought by the Republican defenders that if the threat to Malaga became real, naval forces from Cartagena would come to their rescue. They would not. The newly created Nationalist Army of the South, led by the Duca Seville, but overall commanded by Quiepo de Llano, moved out on January 17, 1937, attacking from the west. Meanwhile, forces under Colonel Antonio Munez Jimenez came on from the northeast. It's not clear how much of a warning the local defending forces received, but it must have been little as the invaders were able to advance some 15 miles, or 24 kilometers, each day. To the right or east of Malaga, the Italians came on as well. They were led by General Mario Rauta, and his men, known as the Blackshirts, were formed into nine mechanized battalions, just under 10,000 men. The Italians had light tanks and armored cars, so were able to move even faster than the carlist militia members on the left. Further helping the Italians were three warships, the Canares, Ballares, and Valesco. They, in themselves, were supported by the German cruiser Admiral Graf Spee, which is probably why no Republican warships challenged the coming nationalist bombardment of Malaga. As stated previously, the Republicans had about 12,000 men in total, but only some 8,000 of them were armed. Yet their spirits were high, which mattered little when the shells or bombs began to drop on them. The desperate men started digging trenches, but it was too late as the attackers rolled in. The Republican militia to the west or left side broke on all fronts and ran back towards Malaga as Marabella to the extreme southwest was taken. Just to the northwest of Malaga, a relatively small force from Granada came in and occupied that area, which threatened to cut off communications with Motril to the far east. The desperate situation for the Republicans had just become that much worse. The word battle can hardly be used here. Franco's men reached the outskirts of Malaga on February 3rd, from the west, the Italians, the next night, on February 4th, from the right. Yet all three forces, Franco's men, the Italians, and those to the north, left escape routes open, hoping the men would flee rather than resist. And numerous Republican militiamen did just that. Two days later, Colonel Villalba, the defending commander, fearing that his men would be captured and killed, ordered the evacuation of the city. Many of the militia made it out of the city, only to be captured and killed days later. Not until February 6th did the weather clear up enough for the Condor Legion to participate. Then fighters swooped down to shoot at the fleeing men along the roads, while German bombers harassed those defenders still in Malaga. On February 8th, General Cuepo de Llano and the Army of the South entered a defenseless Malaga. Those Republican forces captured in the city were shot outright. At least 4,000 men were lined up and executed. Many of the other 8,000 were captured along the roads, fleeing. They suffered the same fate. However, the women and children were relatively left alone to make their way to Madrid, to add to the burden of the Republican government. That day, February 8th, Richthofen proclaimed in his diary, Malaga taken, great victory fiesta in white or nationalist Spain. Of course, there had to be a scapegoat for such a military disaster. Prime Minister Largo quickly fired Undersecretary of War General Asensio Torado before anyone else could put the blame on him. In Toronto's place, Largo put the editor of the Claridad, who had no military experience, Carlos de Baribar. Franco's hopes had come true when Mussolini held to the moon of his fascist fighting prowess. But what Il Duce did not take into consideration was the unpreparedness of the defenders, nor their having equipment to deal with armored vehicles. It would not always be thus in the future. Yet Franco would not forgive or forget those who had opposed him in the South. Between 1937 and 1944, there would be 20,000 more executions. The nationalist prosecutor in Malaga, Carlos Ares Navarro, who oversaw most of these killings, would become the last prime minister to serve under Franco. King Juan Carlos, Franco's successor, would inherit this man. As for the Republican hierarchy, the humiliating loss in the South only exacerbated already established points of tension. The Comintern and the Soviet advisers in-country blamed Largo Caballero, or as they called him, the old man. It was not a term of affection. Largo, for his part, constantly complained of Soviet influence within the army and his party, not to mention the socialist youth of Spain. Clearly, Stalin was thinking long-term in taking control of the country, and it must be said that Largo was right to point this out. Infiltration, no matter the assistance coming from the Soviet Union, could not be accepted. But the Russian premier only saw Largo as ungrateful. Some of the Soviet advisers wrote to Stalin, saying that if the Republicans could manage not to lose this war too quickly, then perhaps Russia should consider taking over the country, even if by force. But Stalin would not go that far. Hitler would never allow it. And besides, any move the Russians made that ruffled the furious feathers wasn't worth the consequences. If Spain fell to the communists, so be it. But to force the issues would force a general war between the two, and Stalin had just started his great purge of the armed forces. The Soviet military was not up to taking on Nazi Germany at the time. By the end of 1936, the Republican government had about 320,000 men under arms, or at least in some sort of uniform. About half of them were stationed along the various fronts, at any one time, in central Spain and to the south and east. This number cannot be firmed up, because the record-keeping was just as dismal as Madrid's ability to get arms into every soldier's hands. Besides, so many officers were creating their own private armies for their own survival. True organization was impossible. During this time, there wasn't much fighting to the north, The communists were focused on securing Madrid, hence none of their donations went to any Republican troops up there. So, as they, the northern units, were mostly fighting with shotguns, they did not have the equipment to launch an offensive. So the Aragon area to the northeast settled into lethargy. But there had been promises of launching intensive guerrilla warfare against the nationalists there but this never materialized. Truth be told, there were many independent fighters behind the main lines in the North, but these men were nothing more than survivors of execution squads. Their only focus each day was survival, which is unfortunate for the Republican cause, as Franco did not have sufficient forces to deal with harassment to the North while simultaneously trying to capture the capital. It goes without saying that Franco's war machine was vastly more organized than the Republicans, and only a better-formed and larger war machine could have defeated it. Well, that or a highly organized, irregular force focused on sabotage. But the Republican militia was somewhere in between. Those Spaniards that espoused their style was best and could meet all situations was holding on to a romanticized version of male courage. By the time they figured out the truth, it was too late. The victory at Malaga gave Franco what he wanted, a stronger commitment for Mussolini. But the main prize, Madrid, still taunted the nationalist leader. Having made his boast to take the capital before spring, it was time again to launch another attack. As the approaches from the northwest and west had not succeeded, Franco would this time come from the east, in the form of a pincer movement that would cut the capital off from any further help in that direction. Franco's forces would move out, starting some 50 miles or 80 kilometers due south of Madrid, and head to the northeast. Meanwhile, Mussolini's Corps of Troop Volunteers would come down in a southwesterly direction from a position northeast of the capital. The two forces would meet east of Madrid and thus cut off the valued Valencia Road that ran southeast out of the capital. If this could be done, then the Nationalists would hold the ground to the south-southwest of Madrid and now to its east. The strangling of Largo's government could then begin, however... Franco wanted the pincer attacks to begin immediately after the fall of Malaga, yet this was impossible. The Italians would not have enough time to redeploy, and the weather would stop the Condor Legion from fully participating. Nevertheless, Franco ordered his half of the attack to commence. But he would find that this would not be Malaga all over again. For one, the Republican troops here were better equipped in terms of dealing with artillery and air attacks. Furthermore, the new Russian Mosca airplane made the Heinkel 51s obsolete. There would be ME-109s coming to Spain, but not until March. The structure of the Nationalist force was as follows. General Mola would be in supreme command, with General Orgaz in command of the front, but it would be, again, Valera in field command. Under him were five brigades of six battalions each, with another eleven battalions in reserve. Most of his troops were Moroccan regulars, but there was also a Carlist regiment and ten squadrons of cavalry. This force would be supported by two German heavy machine gun battalions, von Thomas tanks, six batteries of 155 millimeter artillery, and the 88 millimeter guns of the Condor Legion. These last guns would be tested for the first time, in all about 25,000 men. Ironically, the Republicans had been planning their own offensive in this area to the south of the capital, so when the fighting started, the defenders had about the same number of men. When Franco's force attacked in an easterly direction to then turn to the northeast, Colonel Garcia Esquemenez would be on the right flank, to the south, near Siem Pozuelos. Colonel Rada would be attacking above him, composing the attacker's left flank. In between these two commands were three key bridges, as the attackers either had to cross the river Manzanares or the Harmana River. What had held up the Republicans from attacking first, when Franco and Mussolini were busy in the south at the Battle of Malaga, was simply politics in the form of jealousy. General Miaha, in the Madrid, was busy fighting a turf war against General Pozas, the commander of the Army of the Center. To wit, the Nationalists were able to launch their attack first. Or rather, their half of the attack. As Franco was, for some reason, unwilling to wait for the Italian northern pincer to start. On February 5, 1937, the rains stopped, so General Mola commenced attacking to the east. The initial results were mixed. Roughly in the center of the attack line, but on the right end of Rada's left flank, his men attempted to take a 700-meter-high hill called La Maranosa. On it were two Republican battalions, and they would fight tenaciously and hold their ground. Five kilometers to the south of this hill, the offensive fared better. Those men were able to capture the town of Gózquez de Jabajo. After that, they were just one kilometer away from the river Hamara. To the south of this fighting, on the attacker's right flank, Lieutenant Colonel Asencio's brigade had more success. His brigade captured San Martín de la Vega while on the right, Colonel García Esquemena's men took Siem There, the Republican defenders of the 18th Brigade lost just over 1,000 men in fierce close-quarter fighting. Three days into the offensive, on February 8th, the Nationalists controlled most of the left or western bank of the Harama. On the northernmost point of the offensive, the Nationalists now held the highest ground in the area. They assumed that this would assist them in bombarding the enemy on the other side of the river, as well as covering their coming attack on the nearest bridge. But, as well as the offensive was going on either end, the columns in the center were simply not strong enough in their number of men to keep up. By February 8th, the defensive line was beginning to bend backwards on either end, though the center held because of that hill. Still, the Republicans could not know where the next large assault would come at, so additional units were thrown all along the right bank of the river. Further units were placed just behind this on the road to Madrid. Fortunately for the defenders, heavy rains then came and made crossing the river impossible. But on the morning of February 11th, just left of the center point of the line of attack, Moroccan troops were sent to sneak up on the French sentries, guarding the Pindouquet Railway Bridge. Within minutes, the Frenchmen from the 14th International Brigade lied dead, not having been able to raise the alarm. Of course, the Republicans had lined the two nearby bridges with explosives, which had been sent off. But as these structures were Bailey Bridges, a type of portable prefabricated truss bridge, When the explosives went off, the bridges just rose a few feet in the air, but then settled back down. None worse for their experience. Now that the bridges were in Nationalist hands, a reinforced brigade was quickly sent across. However, these men were soon pinned down by the rifles and larger guns of the 12th International Brigade. This unit was stationed on the higher ground on the right side of the river. For the defenders, this was the whole battle. If the attackers could develop their position on the eastern bank and bring more men across, the defending line would begin to crack. So some 25 T-26 Soviet tanks were sent in to assist. But they themselves were pushed back by the 155mm batteries on the left bank's higher ground. Downstream, or on the attacker's far right flank, Asensio's men also captured the bridges before them. The men there had an easier time of crossing, and soon pushed to the east and south. The defenders, alas, had not prepared the area behind them for defense. During all this, General Miaha and Center Army Commander General Pozas were having their own battle. Miaha would release five more brigades, but only if he was given command of the front. Eventually, Pozos would say yes, and the men would be sent in. But by then, the Nationalists would be across the key bridges. With the situation getting desperate, Soviet-made, bi-wing, snub-nosed fighters, called Chatos, were sent in. However, the Condor Legion's 88 millimeter guns made short work of them. During the night of February the 11th, Republican reinforcements were arriving at or just behind the contested area. This was the 15th International Brigade, under General Gal Hanos Galitz. It was comprised of a British battalion, which was stationed on the left, a Franco-Belgian battalion, which took center, and the Dimitrov battalion, which went to the right. An American battalion was organizing to act as a reserve. The next day, February 12th, to the far south, Colonel Asensio's men continued their advance. They soon ran into this British brigade, which suffered casualties of 50%. The Brits had been using their Maxim machine guns effectively, handing the attackers impressive casualties of their own, but then they simply ran out of ammunition. To the Brits' right, in the center, the Franco-Belgian brigade was pushed back which allowed the Moroccan regulars to hit the British on their exposed right flank. Many men of the center, along with the British, were captured. All but the British would be shot outright. It's believed that on German advice, their lives were spared. After all, it was the government in London that had established the Non-Intervention Committee. With the center and left parts of this new defensive line crumbling, the Nationalists could have pushed forward relatively easy. However, the attackers didn't know of the chaos that existed in the center, so held back. On the 15th International Brigade's right flank, the Dimitrov Battalion was equally withered with casualties. However, they used their aging Colt machine gun to good effect, giving as bad as they got. But then, the gun jammed. Still, the Moroccan regulars had suffered tremendously. The next day, February 13th, Valera, getting desperate for a breakthrough, before Franco could replace him, simply sent in wave after wave of his men. They were gaining ground, but paying too high a price for it. Bravery was the order of the day on both sides. Once again, the 155 millimeter guns of the Condor Legion were called in and tried to end the resistance, and they nearly succeeded. Their shells flattened the brigade's headquarters and cut the telephone lines. This allowed Lt. Col. Baron, the Nationalist field commander on the far left flank, to push ahead, further than any other attacking force. That night of the 13th, Instead of resting, the Republican forces pulled back and tried to reset their defensive line. But only so much could be done during that short time. So the next day, 50 T 26 tanks were sent in. Their counterattack was anything but coordinated, but their sheer intensity of attack gave the international brigades extra time to bring up other units and consolidate the center. General Mola the nationalist in charge was none too pleased about how his map now looked. Yes, the entire front had advanced, with his left having the most success, but the number of dead and wounded soldiers staggered him. Asking Franco, and getting permission, he sent in his last six battalions of reserves. However, this number did not replace what had already been lost, much less actually strengthen his line. On February 15th, Franco ordered a renewal of the attack. However, he had Colonel Barron, on the far left, hold still, as his men had advanced the most. No, Franco wanted the center to now push and catch up to the left. It would have made sense had he waited for the Italians, who were still attempting to get into position. Had he done so, his Italian allies could have hit the defenders in their rear coming from the northeast, but he did not. As the assault commenced, more of his best troops would be wasted, as the beleaguered Republicans only had this one front to deal with. Yet on that same day, the 15th, General Miaha was officially given command of the front. Now that this was done, he released additional troops and started his own offensive. The two surging sides came at each other, with little ground-changing hands, but massive casualties resulting. Ironically, Colonel Barron, holding still on the left, lost ground as his men were attacked from the northeast. Here, the Soviet tank brigade played a key role. But getting caught up in the Spaniards' idea of bravery fought more with guts than intelligence. By nightfall, both sides settled down, Not much happened for the next ten days, as everyone involved in the fighting was beyond exhausted. Still, the leaders of both sides, far from the front, sent in reinforcements and planned their next offensive.